good morning. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around podcast. Hope you're joining us live via YouTube. If you're not, well, then thank you for catching it on the rerun. It's uh, 4.20 as we speak. 4.20 is a day where people who uh, enjoy the weed have a big party. So if you're into that sort of thing, spark one up and sit back, listen and enjoy. If you're an NFL player, I don't suggest it. The NFL has a great sense of humor when it comes to 420. Today is the start of their off-season testing program. Now, the NFL doesn't test for weed anymore, so you can still spark one up. But I always found that very ironic, and it was so intentional that on this day, this is the day that the NFL would begin its testing program. And for an NFL player, this is the hypocrisy of the drug testing program. If you don't test positive over the next couple of weeks, you won't be tested again this season. So you're good to go and do whatever you want. So it's always been a strange loophole in the testing program, in my opinion. But it's 420. A lot going on in the world of sports. We're now nine days away from the NFL draft. That is next Thursday. Certainly going to hit that up. We're going to begin with that. Josh Allen extension talk. We're going to talk about that. I have thoughts on that and whether or not it would be prudent to extend Josh now or to wait another year. We're going to talk about the Sabres and the fact that Don Granado has gone from an interim coach to a guy who looks like he should get the job going forward. We're going to talk about the Yankees off to a terrible start. Hal Steinbrenner pissed off, wondering if he's going to act like his old man and start firing people. Do the Yankees really stink? We'll talk about another Bayheim going to Syracuse, and I got a hit on Steph Curry as well. So that's what we got lined up for you today. Let's start with the NFL draft. And you, you look at the draft, and to me there are three teams that will dominate the discussion of this draft and, frankly, should set the course for their franchises going forward. Those three teams are the Jaguars, the Jets, and the Dolphins. They have the most draft capital and the most impactful draft capital of this draft. Rich Hill has created a chart where everyone's draft pick has a value, and combined total value will tell you where your team is as far as this draft goes. The Jaguars have the most combined total draft capital, their value is 1,696 points. The Jets are second with 1,329, and the Dolphins third, 1,083. In case you were a Bills fan and you're wondering where they fall, this year's draft capital is valued at 346 points. Not a big year for the Bills as far as the draft, but I think it's an important year, as I touched on last week, because this is a find contributors draft you're not looking for that star player but you might find one anyway but you need to fill out your roster and continue to add depth and add pieces so that when you have to make financial decisions you've got somebody ready to step in so we'll certainly hit on the bills and what they are going to look for that'll be more next week as we lead up to the draft but i want to talk about these three teams in particular Start with the Jags. We know, number one overall, they're going to take Trevor Lawrence. And there was an article in Sports Illustrated, and who knew Sports Illustrated was still around? Article in Sports Illustrated this week about Trevor Lawrence. And, of course, you know, as we get closer to the draft, you got to find something to complain about. And maybe Trevor Lawrence doesn't love football. And maybe Trevor Lawrence isn't as dedicated to his craft as he's going to be. This is the overthink period of the NFL draft preparation where all the teams have their boards locked in, but the media still needs to sell stories. So therefore you find a narrative that fits what you want it to fit and you run with it. Well, Trevor Lawrence is about the fourth highest rated quarterback since the draft process has really become a public thing. And those four quarterbacks are the three rated above him I should say are John Elway Hall of Famer Peyton Manning will be a Hall of Famer and Andrew Luck who was on a Hall of Fame course before injuries led him to retirement and the guy who 
Trevor Lawrence is being compared the most to is Andrew Luck because Luck was a cerebral guy, had interests outside of football, and people are now spinning the narrative that he walked away in the prime. Well, he dealt with a number of extremely serious injuries and decided that the rest of his life was more important than playing a few more years of football. But what the Colts got out of Andrew Luck was certainly worthy of a number one overall pick and put them in position to compete. Whether or not the Jags get the same production out of Trevor Lawrence certainly remains to be seen. But I think this is one of those don't overthink it picks. But beyond Trevor Lawrence in this draft, Urban Meyer, who's now the coach in Jacksonville, needs to do a couple things. One, Urban Meyer, and I think this is why he was hired, needs to establish a culture down there that's a winning culture, and I think he will. I don't think they'll win this year, but I think they will win soon. They've got five of the first 65 picks. They also have the 25th pick in this year's first round. So there's a lot of room to add around Trevor Lawrence. When you look at the Jags draft over the last couple years, they had five picks in the first three rounds last year as well and didn't have a great draft. The previous regime has left the closet very empty for Urban Meyer. But I do think his eye on college football as not only a head coach at Ohio State up until recently, but his analyst role has allowed him to see a ton of college football. And I think that's an advantage for him where he's gotten to know some players and gotten to see some players maybe more so prior to the draft process than other people had seen or or been able to evaluate. And I think he should have a very impactful draft. Again, the culture that he puts forth and it begins with this draft and it begins with Trevor Lawrence will dictate whether or not Urban Meyer has success in Jacksonville. The Jets go number two, and they're rumored to take Zach Wilson, yet another quarterback taken by the Jets. And, you know, they've had very little success, whether it be Geno Smith or Sam Darnold. They haven't been able to find their quarterback, and they continue to search for it. They also continue to go from general manager to general manager, and now their general manager, Joe Douglas, wasn't tied to Sam Darnold, didn't draft him. So he's going to take his guy, and we all assume it's going to be Zach Wilson from BYU, the kid who wasn't a captain at the beginning of last season. And I don't know what that means as far as being a leader and being a guy you're going to look to change. Again, the culture, a losing culture, you want to turn it around in New York. To me, there, there are building blocks for the Jets. You've got Mackay Becton at left tackle who, who looked when he was healthy as a stud last year. Kenan Williams, the defensive tackle out of Alabama, entering his third season. An absolute beast on that D-line. You've got those building blocks. Now get the pieces around them. And, and with Zach Wilson going number two, the Jets also have the 23rd pick. They've got five of the first 87 They're going to have draft capital for the next couple of years. But give this kid what you didn't give Sam Darnold. Give him a solid situation on the sideline where your head coach is not inept the way Adam Gase was. I think hiring a defensive coach is an interesting way to go about restarting your franchise when your offense is going to be the focus of your draft. So there's going to be a lot put on the Jets coaching staff, and hopefully they get the right guys in place. To use the Bills as an example, you know, Sean McDermott has a very good situation now, and with Brian Dable and Leslie Frazier as his coordinators, they're set. But remember, it took a couple offensive coordinators for, for McDermott to get to where he is with Dable. So it doesn't always happen right away and when you're developing or trying to develop a rookie quarterback it's imperative especially if you're a defensive guy that the offensive choice is the right choice so that I think that's a big thing to keep an eye on with the Jets but almost as important is getting the pieces 
to put around Zach Wilson to let him succeed, continue building that offensive line, get him a wide receiver. Denzel Sims went last year. Mims from Baylor went last year. He looked like he had something there. So maybe there's a start of some talent around. But continue to build the offense and let Zach Wilson develop into a quarterback that can win games with the pieces around him early on. The third impactful team, as I mentioned, is the Miami Dolphins. And the Dolphins are a really interesting team. And if you're a Bills fan, I think this draft for the Dolphins is is an incredibly important one to keep an eye on. The Dolphins are going to be the Bills' biggest roadblock to doing what the Patriots did for years, owning the AFC East. The Bills are going to have to go through Miami to get this done. Dolphins won 10 games last year. They are a team that you look at, they have the sixth overall pick and the 18th pick. They have four of the first 50 picks in this draft. They've got a great young head coach, in my opinion, Brian Flores. The quarterback, to Tega Viola, I'm not yet sold on him. As an NFL quarterback, I think there's a lot of things to do. But when you look at that Dolphins team and, and the establishment of that team, the tight end's very good with Kaseki. He is is becoming the player he was drafted to be. But I looked up their draft history, and this is kind of interesting. Devontae Parker is a good wide receiver, nothing special, but a former first-round pick. But here we are in a passing league where – Wide receivers seem to be more abundant than ever. You look at what some of the rookie wide receivers did last year and how well they played. The Dolphins have last last drafted a wide receiver in 2017. Haven't taken a wide receiver since the 2017 draft. And in that draft, they only took one. And it was in the seventh round, a kid by the name of Isaiah Ford. So 2018... Don't take a wide receiver. 2019, don't take a wide receiver. 2020, don't take a wide receiver. Yet you've got a young quarterback that you're looking to build around. Now, the offensive line has been addressed. It still could get better. It still could have another piece added to it. But it's time to give Tua a toy to play with. At 18 or wherever they decide to go, maybe at 6, you've got to take somebody that's going to give to a real playmaker. And, you know, you start to look at this draft. We're, we're going to have quarterbacks go one, two, three. Everyone assumes that Lawrence, Wilson, and then the 49ers didn't spend all that draft capital to trade up to three to get a wide receiver or Kyle Pitts, the tight end. They traded up to get a quarterback. My belief is it'll be Justin Fields, the kid from Ohio State. I do think he fits their best. A lot of talk about Mac Jones being the guy, maybe Trey Lance, uh, who seems to be the least known quantity of this quarterbacking class. But remember this, when we talk about quarterbacks and we talk about what's going to happen, five quarterbacks are going to go in the first round. When Josh Allen and Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen – Lamar Jackson, that draft was just a few years ago. That that draft class is entering its fourth year. If you look at where they are now, Baker Mayfield has become, I think, a solid NFL quarterback. I don't think he's a great quarterback. I think he's a solid quarterback. Josh Allen showed signs last year of greatness. Can he back that up? Lamar Jackson has won an NFL MVP, one of the best athletes we've ever seen play the position He plays it differently than most have ever done so, but he's got a system around him that allows him to make plays, and the Ravens, I think, are going to be a team, once again, that we hear from because of Lamar Jackson. But then there's Sam Darnold. Traded out. He was the safest quarterback pick in that draft, if you remember. Josh Rosen was the most pro-ready quarterback leading up to that draft. He's on his fourth team, I think. So while we're looking at these five quarterbacks this year and picking them apart, 
remember this, in three years, at least two of those quarterbacks will be on a different team. So the teams we're talking about right now that are going to get their answer, they're not. They're going to set their franchise back another three or four years only to repeat this process again because they messed up. You know, the Jets messed up three years ago with Sam Darnold. They didn't choose the right guy. It didn't develop him properly. Now they're going to try again. The draft starts at number four because Atlanta could take a fourth quarterback if they so choose or could ride with Matt Ryan. He's got a couple years left on his deal. Still a solid player with Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones. They've got excellent outside wide receivers. You think if you add Kyle Pitts, the generational tight end talent, to that, who do you cover? You can't double anybody. So you, you look at that, and it's enticing from an offensive standpoint. But the reason the Falcons are drafting at number four is because their defense has been terrible for years. This isn't a defensive draft. So what do you do if you're the Falcons? In my opinion, they should trade down. Somebody will be willing to jump up. You look at the back end of the top ten, team like Denver, Carolina possibly, even though they've already got Sam Darnold in-house, wouldn't rule them out. There's possibilities that teams may want to come up and, and look further down a team like the Patriots or the Redskins who absolutely need to restart their quarterback position. Does anyone really think the quarterback of the future in Washington is going to be Ryan Fitzpatrick? I mean, this is a team with a great young defense, and you look at their offense and you think, no, that, that can't work. So there's going to be activity, and it begins at four. And number five, Cincinnati, you, you've got a great choice if you're the Bengals. Even the Bengals can't screw this up. You either take a offensive lineman, which they've actually addressed that offensive line this offseason. So they, their tackle situation should be very good. They got the kid from Alabama. They signed a free agent to play right tackle opposite him. So if you end up taking the tackle guard, maybe Slater, maybe the kid from USC, you solidify the offensive line. You could also take the wide receiver, Jamar Chase from LSU, reunite him with Joe Burrow. There's a, a lot you can do at number five. I think Cincinnati stays there and makes a smart pick, which isn't always the Bengal way. At number six is Miami. Then you go to seven, Detroit, where they move on from Matthew Stafford. Jared Goff is there. I, I like Detroit to take a wide receiver. And, and if Chase goes, then I think Devontae Smith, the Heisman Trophy winner from Alabama, goes seven. Again, Carolina, if they don't trade up, I expect a offensive lineman to go there. Whoever Cincinnati doesn't take, or maybe it's the best offensive lineman in the draft, Panay Suel, or Slater, the kid from Northwestern. Denver, i, I got to think that's a quarterback position. Defensively, Denver's still got a ton of talent. Miller and Chubb still there. They've, they've got the great safety of Justin Simmons at the back end. I think the defense is good enough. The offensive line showed last year some improvement. They got the two-headed monster at running back. They've got very good young wide receivers, led by Jerry Judy, who I think this year will take a big step forward. Now get the quarterback right. I don't think Drew Locke is that guy. It's interesting at number 10 with Dallas picking there. Their defense was terrible last year. Dak Prescott coming back should make that offense roll again. They've got the wide receiver group set. The offensive line is getting a little older, so you could possibly make a justification for an offensive lineman at 10. Or you take the best or the first defensive player in the draft. That's the strangeness of this draft, that the first nine picks are likely to be on the offensive side of the ball. And it's just an indication of where football is now. Not only is the NFL an offensive type, an offensive-minded league, but college football certainly is. Spread offense has made it that way. So defense is becoming an afterthought. The Cowboys 
should trade back, in my opinion. New England at 15, maybe to come up and get the fifth quarterback or the fourth quarterback in that draft. Maybe even Washington. And I don't know that the Cowboys would trade with the Redskins in division. But if the offer's there, it would be smart. But here's the thing. Who owns the Dallas Cowboys and who runs them is Jerry Jones. Jerry does what Jerry wants to do. Reportedly, Jerry Jones is infatuated with Kyle Pitts, the tight end out of Florida. The Cowboys have a need at tight end. I think if you're going to draft Kyle Pitts, you need to get up to number four to do so. The problem is it would be so costly for the Cowboys to do that that, in my opinion, you're just putting all your chips on one side of the table. You are becoming an offensive person. That's it. And I I just can't see this happening. But remember, Jerry likes his shiny new toys. There aren't many prettier shiny new toys than Kyle Pitts at tight end because that kid is an absolute beast. And I think he could be the guy that we talk about changing the position of tight end because he's got the speed to get down the field. He's got size to handle a linebacker covering him. You can't put a safety on him. you got to pay attention to him, a red zone threat. And, and with the Cowboys wide receiver group, you put him there, that offense could really click. So keep an eye on that. Again, the smart thing would be to trade back. Now, all of this talk about what to do and who to draft and all these things, in my opinion, the best who's ever run the draft in the NFL and NFL history was Jimmy Johnson. And while many of you probably just went, well, yeah, he had all those picks from Minnesota. Remember that Jimmy Johnson, when he was the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, had a mathematician assign a point value to every pick in the draft. His draft chart is something that many teams still use. And it allowed him a way to decide whether or not to trade. And before Jimmy Johnson came into the league, nobody traded. You didn't have big trades. His ideas are now very commonplace in the NFL and take away his coaching, his impact on the draft, in my opinion, is Hall of Fame worthy. He's getting in to the Hall of Fame this summer, and it's very well deserved. He was on Colin Cowherd's radio show, show I'm not a huge fan of, but he talked about what this draft and pro days and I just listened to Jimmy Johnson because I think we talk about players in a way that we forget some things sometimes. Here's Jimmy Johnson talking about what's important to him in the draft. So let me talk about pro days. I've always kind of rolled my eyes a little bit at him, but, you know, you don't have a combine now, Jimmy, so some guys are having a second pro day. Do you remember ever going to a pro day and thinking – well, I wouldn't have seen that on tape. No, I, I, I can't think of anything in particular. But, but Colin, uh, the most important thing for me uh, on pro days uh, or even the combine was getting to know these players personally. I, I didn't want to draft anybody with a high pick unless I knew them personally and, and to, you know, unless I've been around them. Because we can all see, you know, in fact, I was talking to Matt Rule about it. I said, you know, the very first thing is, can he play? You know, I said, but then you've got to be able to predict, uh, is he going to get better? You know, is he going to improve? And the number one thing I said, you know, there's five characteristics that I look for, the intangibles to see if he's going to get better. Number one is intelligence. Uh, You know, I said, hit me in the head with a hammer next time I take a dumb guy. (laughs) You know, I said, you know, the second thing, I want a gym rat. I want somebody that works hard, you know, that loves to compete. You know, the third thing I wanted a playmaker. You know, you, I don't know if you're a golfer or not, but you, you, when you're playing golf, there's certain guys that if they got a six foot putt, you know they're going to miss it every time. And there's certain guys with six foot putts, they're going to make it every time. Well, they're that's the playmakers I wanted, the guy that can make the basket. You know, 
And then the fourth thing I wanted speed and quickness. And the fifth thing is character. You can't win championships with bums. I think a lot of what he said is something that we don't think about getting to know the players and, and making sure that player is a smart player and has the character. It brought me back to what Sean McDermott has done in Buffalo. And you look at the draft choices that McDermott and Bean have made and, and the character of the players. And, and we continue to hear about this Bills team and the culture that they have and how important that is. Well, you know, here's one of the best who ever did it talking about that and his drafting was so good in Dallas that after he left Barry Switzer won a Super Bowl with the talent he had and then he went down to Miami don't forget Jason Taylor is a Hall of Famer he drafted him set the Dolphins up for a run got to I, I believe the playoffs a couple times didn't have the quarterback situation unfortunately because Dan Marino was at the end of his great run but character intelligence those things i think the fans and a lot of the the media who we you know the kuipers and the, the mcshays who we follow their mock drafts they're not interviewing these kids the way the teams are they're not trying to get to know the person the, the character of the person they're looking at film and deciding whether or not a kid could play based on what they see on tape and, and how the kid measures out at his pro day or when there is a combine at the combine. But I think the people on the inside of the NFL, and, and this is where the most inexact science, you know, you think about this. We, we spend a month leading up to the draft talking about these kids and where they're going to go. Yet half of them in the first round won't be a good draft pick. Last year, just last year, I mean, think about this. The 29th pick in the first round was Isaiah Wilson to the Tennessee Titans. Wilson played at Georgia. He was a tackle. He's out of football now. One year later, we talk about these draft picks and, and the value that they're going to add to their team. Yet one year later, not because he can't play, but because he doesn't want to play more than he wants to just do what he wants to do. How do you do all of the evaluation of a kid and then that kid wants to walk away one year later? It's beyond amazing to me that you can miss that badly. Again, this is a first-round pick, and it happens every year. We, we already see guys as first-round picks who can't play. So on draft night, when every pick, I love this, every pick, oh, I like what they did there. It's a great move. It, this is really going to do that. Half of them won't work out. It's why I've always been a fan, and, and Jimmy Johnson was the best at it, of trading down, acquiring more picks, to, to quote Jimmy Johnson again, the bigger the net you fish with, the better the chance you have of landing a big fish. It's a simple analogy, but it's absolutely right. So the draft is going to be interesting. Always is because of what we think could happen. But guys like Isaiah Wilson make it something to me that's incredibly intriguing. And, you know, you have all year to get ready for it. You get to that point and you pick a guy and one year later, he is out of football. It's just maddening to me that this happens. And I, I, I find it great theater in that respect. So keep an eye on that. The Bills a couple years ago decided to draft Josh Allen. And when they did, they were criticized for it because Josh Allen's inaccurate. He, he's never going to be good. First year kind of showed some good things, but also reinforced some of the thoughts that he wasn't very good at the line of scrimmage. He wasn't somebody who was going to find accuracy. Second year, we saw an incremental step forward. 
And then year three, boom, Josh blew up and had an unbelievable year, led the Bills to the AFC Championship in spite of the fact that their defense went from a good defense to a terrible defense. The offense carried the team, and Josh Allen certainly became a star. Now in year four, the Bills have two decisions to make. One is an easy one, to pick up Josh Allen's fifth-year option. It's a no-brainer. They will do that. The harder question there is, do they pick up Tremaine Edmonds' fifth-year option? I'm not sure that they should, frankly. I think that they will. And in my opinion, any first-round pick that doesn't have his fifth-year option picked up by the league, by the team that drafted him, that's a miss in the first round. I think Tremaine Edmonds likely will have his fifth-year option picked up, but I know Josh Allen will. The other question with Josh is, now that we assume that he's become a franchise quarterback, is when do you extend him? He's signed through that fifth year, which is this year and next year. His pay rate will go next year into the $20 million range. The salary cap is going to go up next year after taking a step back this year and in subsequent years jump much higher because of the new television money. But when do you sign Josh Allen? And there's two schools of thought. The sooner you sign him, the more you save because other quarterbacks won't set the market. The other school of thought is you better make sure of what you're signing. The, the Chiefs have signed Patrick Mahomes to a 10-year deal because they've seen on the field what he can do and are confident in him. He's already become an MVP and a Super Bowl champion. Lamar Jackson is in line, likely to get an extension, and I think the Ravens know what they have because he's been the same player for the, the three years. He hasn't taken that huge leap that Allen has taken. Deshaun Watson got a big deal, and now you wonder if Deshaun Watson's going to play football this fall. I don't know what's going to happen with the 20 women who have accused him of sexual assault, but I got to think at some point the NFL puts him on the commissioner's exempt list where he just kind of goes away until this thing settles down. He's untradeable. I think he's unplayable, and unless all 20 situations are fabricated, I don't expect to see him on the field this year. So that's a huge dollar amount they have tied up in Deshaun Watson that I don't know whether or not they're going to have the, the return on that investment. And Deshaun Watson looked like a no-brainer when that contract was signed. Of course, there's also the fact that Deshaun Watson said he's never going to play for the Texans again and wanted out before all of these women came forward and accused him of sexual assault. So that whole situation is a mess. When you look at Josh Allen, to me, you've got to be sure of where he is as a quarterback. Is he going to be a guy, and I, I, I personally think Josh isn't a top three guy, I think he's a top 10 guy, and, and that's not a knock on him whatsoever. He's a very good young quarterback. I think there's ways he can get better. I also think there's certain things that are always going to be there with him, ball security. He's always going to try to make that other play, and he's going to turn it over here and there. I, I think the accuracy – is, is always going to be a little bit of an issue, though he's improved it greatly because of the footwork improving and the work he's put in in the offseason. I think he's a guy who his film study has improved greatly. Signing him now puts the Bills organization at a great risk for the next 10 years if he doesn't maintain the level of play that he showed last season. Pushing this extension off a year till next year, in my opinion, doesn't hurt anything. All it does is possibly cost you a little bit more money because, to me, 
there are two quarterbacks in line for extensions that could bump Josh's extension cost up to the team. If Arizona decides they want to extend Kyler Murray, then his extension would potentially cost the Bills. Lamar Jackson certainly could cost the Bills more money if he gets his extension first. But beyond that, Baker Mayfield, he's not going to get the $40 million extension. And if he does, then the Browns haven't gotten any smarter over the last couple of years. They're still the same stupid team. So you start to look around the league at the quarterbacks who might get paid. The only two names are Kyler Murray and Lamar Jackson. So I don't think there's a big risk that the Bills have to wait another year. And by waiting another year, you get to see another year of Josh Allen playing at what level. Because I, I, I think this year's level that he plays at will be the true indicator going forward. Look, I'm not saying he's going to fall off the table. But last year was a magical year for the Bills offensively and a magical year for Josh Allen. Nobody's ever taken a step like he took last year. I never thought Josh Allen was going to be a 70% completion guy. I still don't. It doesn't mean I don't think he could be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. There's a lot to love about Josh Allen. If I'm running the Bills, I'm just not comfortable yet giving him that extension. When you look at the potential negative, again, it's not like Mahomes is going to get a new deal or the the great young quarterbacks that are coming in are going to get are going to push his salary up. There really aren't that many players that can affect his salary at this point. So because of that, be prudent, give it another year to truly understand where his level is going to fall and pay him accordingly. Obviously, Josh in his camp is going to want to be the highest paid player in the league, but you're not likely to jump ahead of Dak Prescott or Patrick Mahomes, for that matter, to become that. I don't think I would be comfortable paying Josh Allen $40 million a year right now. Now, if he goes out and has a year similar to last year, and even if it's a small step back, sure. That's a going right. The television money is going to allow you to kick the can down the road financially, if you will. And that's going to work out fine. But just be prudent because a bad quarterback contract, see Jared Goff, can set your franchise back greatly. There are a lot of quarterbacks who are overpaid and get paid before they deserve it. Don't make that mistake. Be prudent about it. That said, I want you to listen to Field Yates, an ESPN talking head, who really thinks that the one team who could challenge the Kansas City Chiefs this year is still the Buffalo Bills. Here's Field Yates. Who do you consider to be the biggest threat to Kansas City in the AFC? I'll start with Field. I'm going to go with the Buffalo Bills. I'm not trying to be boring here, Greeny. Obviously, they pushed Kansas City at least briefly in the AFC Championship game last year until the Chiefs took off in the second half. But Buffalo retained nearly all of its core pieces this offseason. And I know that Josh Allen made this quantum leap that's going to be difficult to replicate. But he still has room to grow. He's Mm. only going to enter Mm. his fourth season in the NFL. Josh Allen's confidence is sky high. This Bills culture is excellent and going in nowhere anytime soon. It took so long for the Bills to find their quarterback. It looks as though they found him. And not only are the people in Western New York on the Josh Allen bandwagon, the national media is as well. It's a reward, and I really hope this year it looks like fans are going to be allowed in and, you know, to what level occupancy, we don't know. But I'm glad that Bills fans who have suffered so long have waited so long for this moment, are going to get a chance to in-person enjoy. And and frankly, I want to see Josh Allen on the road play to that high level and silence his his opponent's fans 
on the road. I, I want to see that. He, he didn't have to do that last year because there were no fans in, in, in the stands. So I think that's something, too. Waiting another year, be prudent, because the salary cap can be a place that's unforgivable. Major League Baseball now. Look, we are two weeks into the Major League Baseball season. Three weeks into the Major League Baseball season. And already in New York, the Yankee talk that it's just out of control. The Yankees are 5-10. and ten. Terrible start. And everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Yesterday, Brian Cashman had a Zoom call with the New York media and fans were allowed to see it. It was, first off, Brian Cashman's head on this Zoom call because the camera was like right here. His head was ginormous. It was the most bizarre Zoom call I've seen from a a club, a, a professional team in a long time. Here's a quote that I think is important from Brian Cashman yesterday. I don't see us reacting to shake up the roster too quickly. And I don't see us not believing in the staff we have or the players that we have either. That's the message to our players. We do believe in you. We know what you're capable of. This is a bad stretch, and we're going to get through this together. End quote. Cashman is Kevin Bacon in Animal House telling everybody to remain calm in the midst of the chaos. And... While to a degree he's right, when you look at this Yankee team, there are so many questions that needed to go right. First, let's let's talk about the defense because I think this is something that's not going to get fixed. I think the Yankees will hit. There's too many good hitters on this team for them to have the averages that they have now. LeMay was hitting 286. Beyond that, You've got Judge at 255 and Gardner at 360 in his limited at-bats. Pretty much everybody else is in the 100s other than Gary Sanchez, 237 batting average. So, yes, cumulatively, this team is not hitting. They're striking out. Well, they always strike out. They're a home run hitting team. You set up a team to win that way. If you don't hit home runs and you still strike out all the time, it's going to be bad. The Yankees have had a guy retire already. Jay Bruce went uh, went to away. He was signed as a first baseman, outfielder, some depth, but then Luke Voigt got hurt, so he had to play first base. Now you've got DJ LeMayu at first base instead. Defensively, LeMayu isn't a great first baseman. He's not a bad first baseman, but he's not as good at first as he is at second. Ruffnado Dorr was brought in recently. He's now the starting second baseman. He's not good defensively. Labor Torres is not good defensively. You look at Gary Sanchez behind the dish, I always joke that Gary Sanchez isn't a catcher. He's more of a retriever. He's just not a good defensive player. In the outfield, you've got Aaron Hicks all of a sudden who's forgotten how to play defense. And Hicks, when he's batting third and hitting 160, You would expect him at least to be very good defensively. And, you know, baseball, defense up the middle. This team is terrible defensively up the middle. Clint Frazier in left field when he's there is a below average left fielder. So while the defense isn't going to get better, I think that's on Brian Cashman. You've assembled a team of poor defensive players. You've traded defense for offense. And it's coming back to hurt you. That's a direct relationship to the pitching staff. You sign Corey Kluber and Jamison Tyone this offseason. You traded for Tyone. These guys haven't pitched in a couple years. They haven't been there. So because of that, you, you look at what's going on, you're expecting your second and third starter, who haven't pitched in two years, to be good right out of the gate. And it hasn't happened. Seven earned runs in ten innings for Kluber, seven earned runs in just over eight innings for Tyone. They don't look like they did a couple years ago. 
Jordan Montgomery has been pretty good. Garrett Cole has been as advertised. The pitching, you might have options with Debbie Garcia at the alternate site, maybe move Jonathan Luizaga out of the bullpen, give him a chance to start. But frankly, it is what it is. And if they don't stay healthy, I don't know that that's going to turn around much either. Where it does turn around, in my opinion, is the bats. You're going to get more production out of this lineup than you have so far. And if you look at their next 13 games, they're five games under 500. Here's my prediction, Yankee fans. In 13 games, the Yankees will be a 500 team. They play two against Atlanta starting tonight at the stadium. Ronald Acuna Jr. likely not going to go because of the side injury. He's day-to-day. I got to think Atlanta is going to be very cautious with a guy who I think is the second-best player in all of baseball right now. After the two versus Atlanta, they go on the road for an eight-game road trip. Four at Cleveland, who's playing above 500 right now, but they were thought to be a team that's not going to be very good this year. And four at Baltimore, probably the worst team in baseball, not named Pittsburgh. Sorry, Joe, I had to say it. And then three against Detroit, another bad baseball team. If they go nine and four over those 13 games, they'll be at 500. And I believe they will. So while there's a ton of panic right now in New York with the Yankees, the next 13 games, so we're looking at early May, the Yankees are back to 500, right in the midst of where they probably want to be. They'll be fine. There's work to be done. They're not going to go out and make a bunch of trades. They're not going to go out and help things along. Stay the course. Listen to Brian Cashman yesterday. But there's some things, and, and frankly, I think the defense and the starting pitching is why they're not a team that I'm looking at that will win the World Series this year. You've got when it comes to the playoffs, you got to be very good defensively. You got to be able to play small ball and manufacture runs, and you got to be able to pitch. The Yankees can slug their way to an AL East division title, though it'll be tougher when you look at Toronto and Tampa as to how good they are. I, I just think that when it comes to the playoffs, when you're facing better pitching, those home runs don't likely come. I don't think this is a team that gets it done, but they're not also a team that's going to be 10 games under 500 by mid-May. They'll be a 500 team. Speaking of bad teams getting better, the Buffalo Sabres have gotten better under Don Granato. The interim head coach has made a lot of statements lately that I really like. He seems to be a guy who's more worried about players being comfortable and playing and improving than he is about anything else. And he's gotten the players that couldn't play for Ralph Kruger to play more freely. And and Sunday, they beat the Penguins 4-2. to Penguins are always going to be the measuring stick or a measuring stick team. They have three games coming up in a row against the Bruins. Again, measuring stick. If they somehow go 2-1 and one against the Bruins, I think it's time to really start considering Don Granado as the guy to be the head coach going forward. Look at the improvement he's made since Ralph Kruger has gone away. Ralph Kruger was system, system, system. There comes a time where you got to let guys play, and that's what Don Granado is doing. He's encouraging guys to play and be aggressive. If you make a mistake, that's fine. Be aggressive, and, and it's paying off. You're seeing improvement from Darlene and, and, and Reinhardt all across this roster. And the fact that they're 6'8 and 3 under Don Granado, they're 6'3 and 2, and they're last 11 under Don Granado, without Jack Eichel, clearly their best player and captain, who's out for the season, this is very impressive. If the players improve, the team improves. That's Don Granado's simplicity of, of theory. And, and it's working. 
and, and people, te- the team is buying in, and you see tangible results of that. The same tangible results you saw under a system of Ralph Kruger. So I think it's really time to start looking at Don Granado, not as an interim head coach who's turned the season around a little bit and given the fans something to pay attention to, but I think it's time legitimately to give this guy an opportunity to become a head coach in the league going forward. And, you know, I mentioned without Eichel, Linus Allmark's been hurt as well, and who's their only legitimate NHL goalie on the roster. So you're winning games in spite of your goaltending, not because of it. Even more impressive, and I think if you continue to add pieces, maybe next year, maybe next year, this team will finally get that elusive playoff berth for the Pagulas. They may have backed into another head coach that has the ability to turn their franchise around. It'd be quite something if Don Granado becomes the Sean McDermott of the Buffalo NHL team. That would be a great thing for the fans in Buffalo. It sure, sure seems to be heading that way. The Syracuse Orange picked up another transfer, this time a graduate transfer from Cornell, Jimmy Beheim. Jimmy will join brother Buddy and father Jim on the Orange team next year. And he's another guy with some size and can play the wing, can shoot it a little bit, average over 16 points at Cornell, was a 30% three-point shooter. Not a great shooter like Buddy, but a good shooter. You start thinking about his ability to shoot the three, Cole Swider's 40-plus percent ability to shoot the three, Buddy, Joe Girard, their abilities to shoot the three. Theoretically, this team next year is going to have some shooters. It's going to have some athleticism, especially with the five-star recruit Benny Williams coming in. The center position looks better than it has in a while with Brahmas eBay back. With Jesse Edwards there, it's going to be intriguing. But for Jim Beheim to be able to coach two of his sons next year, it's going to be a lot of fun. And for Buddy and Jimmy to be able to play together, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a special year for Syracuse. I don't know what the results are going to be, but theoretically, of course, looking at their ability to shoot it, offensively, this team should be pretty good. And the last thing I wanted to hit on this week, is Steph Curry. Steph is on a roll that we haven't seen before when it comes to three-point shooting. We haven't seen a guy do what he's been doing over the last couple weeks. His last 10 games, he has, I'm sorry, last 11 games, he's had 30 points. Now, while that's great, the record's 32 games in a row over 30 by James Harden a few years back. Steph has had an impact on basketball that will be long-lasting after he's gone. He's the greatest shooter that I've ever seen play the game. I don't know that he's one of the 10 or 15 greatest players I've seen play the game. I don't think I can agree with that. But his impact on the game is unmistakable. When Michael Jordan came into the league... In the early eight, in the mid mid eighties, he came in in eighty four. When he came into the league, his ability to hang and finish was something that was emulated by everyone who played pickup basketball. Everyone tried to be Michael Jordan. You remember the the Gatorade commercials, "Be Like Mike." It was a real thing, and Michael Jordan is a unicorn, and everyone else tried to be like him, and and it just didn't work. You couldn't do it. In a way, it hurt the game because guys would go in and, and, and try to hang and finish on with three guys on them, and they couldn't do it, but Mike could. Steph Curry's had a similar impact on the game. His ability to shoot the three and the style of which he does it, every young kid now wants to shoot the three. Guess what? Most of them can't. But the change in the game is unmistakable. I looked at this, I was looking at Steph Curry and how he's impacted the game, how he's changed the game. When you look at numbers compared to some of the other 
all-time great shooters, it, it's pretty amazing to hear the difference in today's basketball and what Steph Curry's doing versus what happened in the past. Larry Bird was about as good, as good a shooter as you ever find in the league. One of the five greatest players, in my opinion, ever to lace him up. Bird, his career high for three-point shots attempted in a season was 237 in the 87-88 season. 237 threes Bird took in that season. Steph Curry has seven seasons now where he's taken over 600 threes. Think about that. Larry Bird, most he's ever taken, 237. Steph Curry, seven seasons where he's taken over 600. Okay, but Bird played in the 80s. All right, give me something more recent, okay? To me, Reggie Miller was the best ever at moving without the ball. Steph Curry is a lot like Reggie Miller moving without the ball. Constant motion, continuing to get a feel to get open, doesn't need much to get it off. Reggie Miller played in the 90s. Reggie Miller's career high, four threes in a season, was 536 threes taken in a season. Again, Steph has seven seasons over 600. Yeah, but that was the 90s. Give me something more recent, okay? Ray Allen, another great shooter who was great at moving without the ball. Ray Allen had one season where he took over 600 threes. Steph Curry now has seven. What sets Steph apart from those guys, Ray Allen, Reggie Miller, in my opinion, is his handle. Steph's handle may be every bit as impressive as his ability to shoot. Because if you watch his handle, you watch his ability to get free off the dribble, I don't ever remember a guy having that ability, ever. You add to that the fact that he's the best shooter who's ever played the game, it's amazing. And the impact he's had on the game, not only has it resulted in many more threes, but look at a guy like Trey Young. Who do you think Trey Young modeled his game after? Here he is in his second year in the league, just three years out of high school. He looks like Steph Curry. He plays like Steph Curry. He's very good. He's not as good as Steph, but he's very good. Now, I'm talking glowingly about Steph Curry. Truth in advertising time, I don't like Steph Curry. I don't like watching a guy shimmy after he took a, after he makes a shot. It bothers me. He does it all the time. And, and frankly, it's something that I don't like at all. I don't root for Steph Curry. I root against him. I'm not a Steph Curry guy. But when you look at what he's done and you look at his shooting percentages, career shooting percentage, 43.4% from three. It's amazing. Think about this, too. Steph has taken 6,325 threes in his career. I'm sorry, 6,342. I forgot last night's game. 6,342 threes in his NBA career. That's in 12 years. Remember last year he only played five games because of injury. In 18 years, Reggie Miller took 6,486 threes. Steph's likely to pass Reggie Miller before the end of this year. Ray Allen, in 19 seasons, took 7,429 threes. Steph will probably pass him next year. Not only is he the greatest shooter in the history of the game, but his impact in how the game has played is going to be seen for years to come. Is it good for the game of basketball? I don't know. In a lot of cases, I'd say no, because a lot of guys shoot threes who shouldn't be shooting them. They're not good three-point shooters. Doesn't stop them from shooting them. I would be in favor of moving the three-point line back because 
guys like Steph and Trey Young and the really good shooters, Luka Doncic, it doesn't matter that the three-point line is there. They're stopping and shooting from the logo, five feet, six feet beyond that arc. You could move it back a couple feet. What that would do, in my opinion, was eliminate the bad shooters from shooting threes. They shouldn't be shooting. And theoretically, would further spread the court. Move it back in, in college basketball. Move it back in the NBA. I think it helps free up the middle a little bit, and it prevents bad shooters from shooting. That way, the impact that Steph has made on the game becomes purely a positive impact, not an impact that you question whether or not it's good or bad for the game. But Steph, what he's doing, it's fun to watch. He's been a great, great player. So that's it for this week. Next week will be a couple days from the draft. Who knows? We might have more trades to talk about before then. We'll keep you posted with all that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.